you have your Bibles this evening, could you please turn with me to the book of John, chapter 19. If you have one of the pew Bibles in the back, that'll be page 906. John 19, 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, as we approach this passage tonight, we need, we need your help. This is a sobering evening as we look at the crucifixion of your only begotten son and the work that he has accomplished on the cross. But it's also a joyous time. Would you, would you give us a glimpse tonight of some of that joy, the anticipation we have looking forward to what we celebrate on Sunday, uh, but also a sobriety over the severity of what happened at the crucifixion. We need you tonight. Would you calm my heart? Would you work in the hearts of your people tonight? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So to be clear up front, the difficulty in looking at this particular passage is the overwhelming nature of the death of Jesus the Messiah. This section of scripture is the focal point of the story of redemption. It's the consummation of God's plan for the fullness of time, as Paul calls it in Ephesians. Those who lived before this tragic event anticipated it eagerly. Those of us now who live afterwards look back and marvel at what has been accomplished in the death of Jesus. So how do you unpack this central event in just a few minutes? How do you give it justice in an hour or two or even in a lifetime of reading or preaching? You can't. <laughs> But that would be a pretty poor reason to avoid meditation on these few verses. To the contrary, I would suggest that because of the centrality of this to the very gospel itself, we would do well to devote more time to meditating on this passage and the fullness of its ramifications. So here we are on Good Friday with just a few moments to reflect on the most horrific, the most humbling, the most awe-inspiring gratitude-inducing, and most necessary event in all of time and eternity. In our passage, verse 28 begins with, after this. So it would be helpful to get an idea of what has recently occurred. I know most of you are familiar with this story, but let's get a general idea of where this passage occurs in the story of Christ's life. Immediately prior... In the book of John, we find Jesus assigning care of his mother to the disciple John. We see in this a beautiful example of the honoring of one's parents exhibited by Jesus. In the final labored breaths of his life, he addresses his mother Mary, and he ensures that she's cared for. But then if we, we pull back, we expand our focus a little bit to the prior five days leading up to this moment. Here are some of the high points in order. We see the triumphal entry of Christ uh, entering Jerusalem on a donkey. We see the Last Supper, which we're going to have the opportunity to commemorate here in just a few minutes. We see Jesus comforting his disciples 
He says things like, don't be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back. We see Jesus' final prayer to his father in which he asks for the cup that he knows is coming to be taken from him, but he willfully submits. Betrayal and denial by Judas and Peter, respectively. Abandonment by the remaining disciples. We see his trial. And then finally, the crucifixion. So let's return our focus now to the crucifixion and our passage. The Gospels say almost nothing about crucifixion itself. And I'm not going to expand on this tonight. It's sufficient to say that this method of Roman execution was specifically designed and intended to be lengthy painful, and humiliating. Jesus has come to Golgotha, the hill outside Jerusalem, with two thieves. Wine is offered to him, but he denies it. Note that he accepted nothing that would deaden his senses or ease the coming agony that he faced on the cross. It's about nine in the morning when spikes are driven into Jesus' hands and feet, and he's raised between two thieves. You think back now to the bronze serpent that Moses lifted in the wilderness for the healing of the Israelites. And then more recently, Jesus references to this exact event in John chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. A few of his followers are nearby, but Jesus is beyond the help of any man. He's abandoned, rejected, suffering alone, having willfully surrendered to the wickedness of his creation for his creation. As Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We see interactions then between the two thieves and then between one of the thieves and Jesus. Then starting about noon, darkness covers the land. Luke emphasizes this darkness with the phrase, The sun's light failed. Creation itself testifies to the cosmic upheaval that's occurring in this moment. 1 Corinthians, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. This is Jesus, the light of the world, now shrouded in darkness. The very blood of the word made flesh watering the Genesis 3 cursed ground at the foot of the cross. The temple veil is torn from top to bottom, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us. The earth shakes and rocks split, Matthew relates. Around three in the afternoon, after Christ has been on the cross for six hours, the darkness has been present for three hours, and as if abandonment by man was not enough, Jesus cries out, my God My God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22. This is Jesus, the bread of life, crushed and broken. So looking back at verse 28 now. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. Sour wine is given, fulfilling yet another messianic prophecy. This one from Psalm 69. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. This is Jesus, the living water, now parched and dry. But unlike the offer of relief that he received before the crucifixion, this offer of wine Jesus receives. The difference? 
John tells us, Jesus knew all was now finished. He has consumed the entire cup of God's wrath without relief, without medication, without anything to reduce its fullness. And then, to make things clear to those present and to John's readers, what Jesus knew in verse 28, he plainly speaks now in verse 30, and he says, it is finished. I think the order of Jesus' statements is helpful to see. We get a small glimpse of what's involved in these words, it is finished. Matthew and Mark record the cry of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luke then records Jesus' very last words before giving up his spirit in Luke 23. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Whereas John says, he gave up his spirit. Between the cry of being forsaken by God and the last voluntarily, voluntary yielding of his spirit to the Father, Jesus speaks the simple word, it is finished. Do you see this? It is finished. Results in a transition from Jesus' address to God, holy back turned, now again to Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Yes, certainly still, holy God, but now again, Father. No longer forsaken. Jesus knew the judgment was complete. He voluntarily surrenders his spirit. The pivot is, it is finished. And this is where I'd like to focus for just the next few minutes. What exactly is finished? This word echoing through time and eternity is enough to cause the most stoic of Christians to jump for joy, and I'm hoping we can see some of that tonight. We're going to look at three specific things. There are many. We're going to look at three that are finished in the work of Christ on the cross. First, I want to look at the offerings for sin that are finished. I know both the men's group and the women's group just went through the book of Hebrews. One of the things that we saw was the comparison between the Old Testament ceremonial laws and its implements and the work of Christ. The author of Hebrews calls these laws and implements, the temple, uh, all of these, calls them shadows, shows that Christ is the substance. Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jump ahead a few verses, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies or shadows of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Sam just read a few minutes ago, Hebrews chapter 10, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus, as both the high priest and the perfect sacrifice, offered himself and presented his blood in the heavenly temple, the temple not made with hands, the substance of what was only known in shadows as a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. The second thing I want to look at tonight, finished by Christ on the cross, is the record of our debt is finished. 
The single word rendered in English as it is finished was used in accounting. Often it was used by merchants, and it means paid in full or to bring to a close. We see in Colossians 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. On the cross, after enduring the emptying of God's cup of wrath, Jesus declared the record of debt against us, his own, as canceled, brought to a close, paid in full. This is joyous news because the debt was far more than any of us could hope to pay. Brothers and sisters, if you have placed your faith in Christ, you are no longer in bondage. You are no longer under the debt or burden of sin. The third and final thing I want to look at that was accomplished in it is finished is the work of the incarnation. Jesus' death alone would have canceled the record of debt like I just mentioned, but the removal of our sin debt only returns us to the state of Adam in the garden. A holy God does not merely require no sin. He requires righteousness, perfect obedience to the law. We don't just need a chance to try again. We need positively perfect righteousness. Jesus lived a completely sinless life. Kids, he never disobeyed his parents. He never needed a spanking. He never told a lie. He kept the entire law of God perfectly, not only in action, but in motive as well, in his heart. Romans 9, for as by one man's disobedience, Adam's, the many were made sinners, and so by the obedience the many will be made righteous, the tie between obedience and righteousness. Jesus also suffered. Isaiah tells us that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows. His suffering included direct attacks from Satan. We see in the 40 days in the wilderness, attacks from the religious leaders throughout his ministry, the death of his close friend, Lazarus, the son for whom and by whom everything was created in perfection, Colossians and Genesis, right? woke up every day and he saw in those around him the effects of sin and the fall in their sickness, fear, death. He saw demonic activity and the lack of faith. This repeatedly moves him to compassion as we see in the Gospels. His perfect creation marred and destroyed by sin. This is suffering in life and of course he suffered in death, enduring for the joy that was set before him, mind you, the cruelty of the cross and the outpouring of God's wrath. And so the, the work of Emmanuel, God with us, begun in an unwed virgin 30 some odd years prior to this, was now complete. Perfect obedience, suffering in life and death. So it is now truly finished. Our sin imputed or counted to Christ Christ's righteousness counted to us once and for all time. No sacrifice needed. There's nothing you can do to assist in this work of salvation. The work is done. It was finished by Christ in his suffering and death. This is the punishment that you and I deserve. Three hours of darkness and infinity of wrath poured out. 
There's no way any created being could endure this. And that's where we see the good news of Jesus' work. Had he not done this, we would have no hope. You can't pay your debt back. You can't get back to zero. You can't keep the law. You can't get the positive righteousness that's needed, but you don't need to. These words, it is finished, tell it all. Christ has done what you and I cannot even attempt, and the benefits of this work are offered to all freely. If you have not yet accepted this gift, the punishment and the wrath that was endured by Christ on the cross is yours to face alone for eternity. You will need to face God with your own sin, with your own insufficient righteousness. The only hope that you have is in Jesus, the very Son of God who gave himself freely for sinful men. But Scripture is clear. This is the only hope that you need. You must turn to him in repentance and faith. And, oh, dear Christian, Rejoice that your salvation purchased in the perfect law-keeping life and substitutionary death of Christ has been granted to you by grace through faith as a gift. You didn't receive it by work. You can't keep it by work. You're going to fail. There will be times when you willingly choose to sin. But know that you can go to the Father in repentance. You can plead the blood of the perfect, spotless Lamb. Rest and rejoice in the one who has finished your salvation. So we end tonight with the death of Christ. We've seen three things that are included in Jesus' words, it is finished. There are many more. But this isn't the end of the story. It gets even better. I think most of you all know the rest. But Sunday we get to hear it yet again and to rejoice yet again in the finished work of Christ, accepted by the Father, on your behalf. It is finished indeed. Can we pray? Oh, Father, that you would work your perfect plan in this way, that Christ would absorb all of the wrath that there's no way we could even hope to face. Thank you. Would you renew in our hearts the love and the joy and the overwhelming gratitude for the work of Jesus. Thank you that it is finished and that we can trust in his work. We pray in the name of the one who died for us, Jesus himself, amen.